Birth control was one of the most popular and life-changing innovations of the 20th century. It was a tool that gave women autonomy over their bodies and control over their reproductive lives. It gave them a foothold into the workplace, and some scholars credit it for as much as one-third of women's wage gains since the 1960s. No wonder it's so popular. More than 90% of American women have relied on contraception in their lives. Roughly 8 out of every 10 Americans support birth control as essential, basic health care. But not every woman has access. Of the roughly 70 million women of reproductive age in the United States, too many have little to no realistic access to birth control. 19 million live in contraceptive deserts. More than 7 million are uninsured. One in five women, and nearly one in three Black and Latina women, say they're not using the birth control they want. Then, there's the added challenge of deep distrust within communities of color. This is no surprise, given our government's troubling history of coercive sterilization of and experimentation on racial minorities. Recent years have brought new challenges, including funding restrictions on full-spectrum healthcare providers like Planned Parenthood. The consequence? Dramatically restricted access to preventive healthcare, like contraceptives, for millions of low-income people. The good news? There's hope on the horizon and promising ideas for closing the gap in reproductive access. I'm Laura Arnold. On today's Deep Dive, we'll explore the issue of contraceptives, the challenges of access, the barriers to giving women true choice, and the policy solutions that could close the gap in contraceptive equity. We kick off our conversation with Dr. Reagan McDonald mosley Chief Executive Officer of Power to Decide. Power to Decide focuses on teen pregnancy, unplanned pregnancies involving young women, and the racial and economic disparities that are all too familiar within this space. Reagan, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start by level setting on contraceptive access. Let's say you're a 25-year-old woman in this country and you want birth control. Talk to me about what options you have and what challenges you may face. Yeah. So this is a, a mixed response, right? Because in, in the one sense, you have more options now than ever in the history of the world in terms of the types of contraceptives available to you. There are a plethora of different types of pills. There's the contraceptive patch. There's now a new ring on the market that can be used for a whole year, a number of intrauterine devices and a contraceptive implant. However, the innovation and increasing access to populations has not caught up. So access largely depends on where you live whether or not you have insurance, or the means to pay for your desired care. Best case scenario, you're a 25-year-old woman and you have private insurance from your employer. You have your pick of providers. You could go to a doctor's office, a local health department, perhaps a Planned Parenthood. Hopefully your provider supplies the full range of methods that I presented, and you can get anything you want the same day. So that's the ideal scenario. But of course, we don't live in an ideal world, so most of us live in a world where there are some barriers. That's right. So if you, for example, navigate the world with a low income and rely on Medicaid for your insurance coverage, you have much limited more options for your providers because many doctor's offices won't take Medicaid. So you may have less options in terms of the hours that a provider is available to you. And when you get there, even what methods are available to you. States have varying levels of coverage for Medicaid. So if you're in Vermont, you may have enormous access or really heightened access to contraceptives. But if you're in a state like Kansas, then maybe you have fewer options. Is that right? That's exactly right. And even the individual formularies that might be an option for you if you have Medicaid are likely more limited. So let's say there's a specific pill that you want 
because you have the least amount of side effects with that pill. That pill might not be on the formulary of your Medicaid provider, whereas it's more likely to be on the formulary if you have private insurance and coverage. So again, access largely depends, unfortunately, in this country on where you live, what your income is, and your insurance status. You've done a lot of work, Reagan, on what you call contraceptive deserts. What are those and why do they exist? Yeah, so at Power to Decide, we've found that there are large swaths of the country where people do not have access to a provider that can provide the full range of contraceptive methods. There are more than 19 million women of reproductive age that are in need of publicly funded contraception and living in a contraceptive desert currently. So that means for those women, they have to travel exorbitant distances, navigate childcare, time off from work, et cetera, just to get the care that they need. So if you're a young woman who lives in northern Texas, which is a contraceptive desert, in your county and in dozens of other counties in that area, you may have to travel more than 400 miles to get to a local health center. So what are your thoughts on what needs to happen in order to eliminate these contraceptive deserts, in order to move the conversation forward in a way that addresses the needs of communities that are not being served? So some of the things that we need to do are ensure that there are high quality options in close proximity to people, regardless of where they live. So rural communities, urban communities, We need to get rid of this two-tiered system in our country where we have a different level of quality of care for people with private insurance versus people with Medicaid or people with no insurance at all. And we need to do whatever we can to decrease that friction and make access more accessible. Pharmacists prescribing of birth control pills is something that is occurring in a number of states right now, and that is great, but it's not perfect. And so hopefully the birth control pill will be over the counter sometime soon. I know that the FDA is looking at a few companies right now that are working on that process. Anything that we can do to make contraceptive options more accessible to people without barriers is going to be critically important. And we also need to strengthen the infrastructure of our brick and mortar systems, because even if a birth control pill is available over the counter, there's still going to be a need for high quality in-person care as well. That is a great summary, thank you, of the challenges in the supply side. Let's talk about the demand side. What have you seen in your experience about demand for these services and contraceptives in general among at-risk communities? So I think, you know, we really have to look upstream with these challenges. There's a lack of high-quality, evidence-based sex education in schools and communities in our country. Many states have no requirements at all around sexual education, and only 18 states require sex ed to be medically accurate. In fact, 35 states require schools to stress abstinence with sex education when it is provided. So I think the number one challenge is access to high-quality sexual education. And then we also need to make information more resonant with young people, more accessible with the young people. And we need to focus on things that care about not just efficacy. There's been a huge movement in the reproductive health rights space to really focus on providing the most effective methods. But the reality is that people in communities often care about other things, side effects, how person-centered and person-driven it is. Oftentimes, efficacy is only one variable that people are concerned about. So if providers are pushing efficacy, 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 but someone else is really concerned about side effects, then they're not having a really great conversation, right? And we're not meeting the needs of our patients and communities. So these are some of the things that we need to do to increase access to information. How do you think we bridge the gap of the really significant distrust in some Black and Brown communities about contraceptives in general, given the very problematic and tragic history of abuse in this country? 
Yeah, that's such a great question. It's something that I honestly hadn't thought a lot about before moving to Baltimore 13 years ago and was immediately confronted with this. In the late 80s and early 90s, there was a big project in Baltimore City to increase access to contraceptive implants in young high school students in mostly black and brown neighborhoods and communities. And it left a really bad taste in the mouths of people in the black community because it felt like to them a strong initiative that was pushed on young women. And so as I was coming in as a newly trained family planning specialist to the Baltimore community, excited about all of the new contraceptive tools, I was faced with a lot of resistance from the community in response to sort of the historical context of this project. And so it forced me to do a lot of research around this and to understand that this was overlaid on a very dark history that many in my people in my community were aware of, even if only vaguely. For example, the eugenics boards that happened in states, including North Carolina, that targeted women who were deemed unworthy of reproduction and forced many women to have sterilizations with a preponderance of Black women in that group. And we do ourselves no favors by ignoring this history and shoving it under the rug. We have to address it head on and learn from it and learn from those mistakes. And more importantly, I think it's critically essential that we think about how race and racism play a role in the reproductive health rights and justice ecosystem today and in the broader healthcare system and society. How do we ensure that leadership of reproductive health rights and rights organizations are representative of the populations within which we work? How do we work to inculcate reproductive justice principles in our work and center equity? How do we ensure that Black, Brown, Indigenous people, people with low incomes and gender diverse people receive high quality care? care that's equal to wealthy cis white women. These are the questions that should drive the work that we do today. We have to reckon with our past, but we also have to spend time envisioning and working tirelessly towards a more inclusive and just future for today and tomorrow. Robin, thank you so much for spending time with us on Deep Dive and for sharing your thoughts on this crucial work to move this very important issue forward. Like Reagan, Fatima Gosgraves has also spent her career fighting to advance opportunities for women and girls across the United States. As president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center, Fatima has worked across a broad set of issues, including income security, health and reproductive rights, educational access, and workplace fairness. Fatima, welcome to Deep Dive. I'm so glad to be here. So there's a lot of complexity to this question. There are geographic challenges, there are financial challenges, there are logistical challenges, there are the challenges of living your life and having to find the time to go through all the loopholes to make an appointment and show up somewhere and deal with childcare and all these things. And so there's a whole confluence of factors that makes this particularly challenging and particularly challenging, frankly, for women who have fewer financial means. And there are real consequences to all of this complexity. Today, one in five women pay out of pocket for birth control, and one in four who aren't using the method that they want say it's because they simply can't afford it. Yeah, that's right. So the Affordable Care Act has a birth control benefit that in my mind is just really an important example of the ways in which a policy shift can change things on the ground for people. Because when that benefit actually went into effect, all of a sudden people were accessing the birth control that they actually wanted rather than only the one they could afford. And that shift in how people think about care was really, really significant. We know that about 63 million women had coverage of birth control without out-of-pocket costs 
in 2020, and that's directly tied to the Affordable Care Act's policy. And of course, the Affordable Care Act is far from perfect in this regard. It covers one method per category just to take oral contraceptives. There's 37 versions of the pill. All of them are different, but the ACA technically only mandates that a plan cover one. That's right. The same thing for IUDs or for many of the very popular and most effective contraceptive methods. Certainly, it's a step forward, a gigantic step forward, because even acknowledging that contraception is a fundamental tenet of healthcare was a giant leap and unprecedented. But many of us view that as the beginning and not necessarily the end of the fight. But in terms of federal funding, Medicaid is an enormous part of it, Title 10, Section 330 of the Public Health Service Act. So there's this web that provides support to around 10,000 safety net clinics that serve at-risk populations and populations that are underprivileged. And in addition, states have their own programs that may or may not be more generous. It seems to me that there's a little bit of a geographic lottery in terms of whether or not you'll be able to access contraceptives. Do you live in a state that has tapped into federal benefits and that has extended family planning benefits via Medicaid or another program? Or do you live in a state that doesn't value that? Do you live in a jurisdiction that's rural and that is remote and doesn't have the suite of alternatives for contraception that you may want? Or do you live in an urban area where it might be easier? I think that that is right. And it is why we work at both levels, because you've seen a couple of things happen at the same time in some states. You've seen some states that have looked at the ACA and said, I'm going to top you times two and have it be our mandate to ensure that people can access the contraception of their choice and make it so that there aren't a range of barriers. States that have taken care of financial barriers, who have focused on young people and their connection with community colleges and higher ed, starting with the premise of how do we make it easy for people? And we have other states at the same time who have taken the position that they're going to try to make it harder for people. And where I think the federal government comes in when you have that situation is really setting a floor. And that floor, in some ways, is about real questions of justice and equality, right? It is that floor of no matter where you live, whether you have won a lottery for a state that is going to put you as a priority for accessing your care, should matter less if there is a floor that is reasonable for all. For decades, activists have tried to lump birth control in with abortion. As a result, access to birth control became politicized. The Trump administration stepped this up significantly. For example, the government passed rules to allow employers to withhold birth control coverage from their employees. Trump's press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, explained it this way. The president believes that the freedom to practice one's faith is a fundamental right in this country, and I think all of us do. And that's all that today was about. Beyond allowing bosses to impose their religious and moral views on their employees, the administration pushed through other policies that damaged birth control access. For example, their gag rule dictated that healthcare providers could not receive Title X federal funding for contraception and cancer screenings if they even mentioned abortion services to their patients. This rule pushed nearly 1,000 health centers out of the Title X network, reducing access to more than 1.5 million people who are low-income, uninsured, and otherwise marginalized. The last four years have really been extraordinary because we saw 
meaningful attacks on the Title X program. We saw meaningful attacks on Medicaid. I actually think it was not just conflating contraception with abortion. It was sort of upending the idea around who decides, who decides, and for women in particular, who decides your fate on the healthcare decisions that matter to you. And that is a fight that is not a new fight, especially in the states where we have seen efforts to be really clear that we don't think it's individuals who decide, it's politicians who decide, it's employers sometimes who decide, maybe it's schools who decide. And so some of this really is about controlling destinies and futures. And I think it's important that we root some of these conversations around contraception within a broader framework of what it means to be equal in this country. So that's one thing. But the second thing I would say under a guise of religious freedom, we've seen a lot of actions taken by the last administration. And it is a a sort of newer use of religion in that way, sort of religion as a sword in many ways, giving people a license to discriminate if they disagree. And that disagreement can be rooted in religion, but it also, it turns out from the Trump administration's view was that it could be rooted in your disagreement. You might have a moral disagreement and they said that was okay. And so that became a kind of unending idea. And that gets back to my first thought was who decides? <laughs> who, who decides whether or not you control your reproductive destiny? There's no shortage of people who want to exert that control. The political posturing has been loud and constant. From Texas Senator Ted Cruz. But what we should do now is we should cut off every penny of taxpayer funds. Nebraska Senator Deb Fischer. This bill simply says the taxpayer dollars should not go to organizations mired in scandal and likely illegal activity. The South Dakota governor, Christy Noem. By subsidizing organizations like Planned Parenthood, which promote and perform abortions, taxpayers are propping up the abortion industry. All of them have one common thread. They are attacking organizations such as Planned Parenthood over abortion. But access to contraceptives gets caught in the crossfire. I guess what I struggle with, and this is in many areas of our policy thinking, we struggle with this, is at some point, do you take a different tax so that you protect this one wildly popular and accepted aspect of the bigger whole and somehow segregate the more controversial one? You know what I mean? So carve out abortion and have the abortion fight kind of independently and allow these systems to continue serving women for reproductive care, excluding abortion. So do you ever think about that? And how do you think about maybe carving out the ideological debate so that women can be served? Yeah, it is a tricky challenge. You know, the first thing is that the truth is under our laws, abortion and birth control are actually linked. They each grew out of the same constitutional principles around respecting people's autonomy and self-determination. And so actually, one of the things that I think people should be aware of is that allowing incursions on the right to abortion actually does threaten the right to birth control. It threatens the underpinning of our constitutional access. But the other thing is that they are often linked in people's lives, that they're the same people who need birth control might need abortion care at some point, and they might need maternity care, and they might need infertility care. 
And in some ways, that's why our laws link each of those. Our health systems link them too. And so there's really a continuum of reproductive healthcare and a little bit of a worry that if you start conceding one, it undermines our ability around the rest. If, if I thought the really challenge we were dealing with was that the debate around access to abortion care was infecting a debate around contraception, maybe we'd be having a different conversation. Although I don't know, probably not because I really do believe it's a continuum. But the truth of the matter is, I think the abortion conversation is a starting point for some of these really extremist lawmakers. I believe that their in-game is not just curving the right and ability to access abortion care, that it is also curbing the right and ability to access contraception. And I think that's why you saw that in the Trump administration, when there was the power and authority to do it, to do everything that they could to make it harder to access both. And it's why we actually, on the other side, need really affirmative and affirming responses from our policymakers who are with us. You know, it's not enough to be neutral. We actually need affirmative responses that ensure for people that they will fight for the right, the access, and the ability to get the care that we need. Fatima, thank you so much for joining me today on Deep Dive. I appreciate your perspectives and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. We've talked about the barriers to access and studied the policy landscape at a national level. Now let's zoom into a specific state. Jessica Sanders is a family planning researcher and advocate working in Utah to elevate family planning and drive contraceptive access. It may be surprising, but Utah, a conservative state with a religious bent, has taken some notable steps toward expanding contraceptive access, like allowing pharmacists to prescribe birth control. Jessica, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for having me. So for our listeners who don't know Utah, tell us how this red state emerged as a place worth watching in contraceptive expansion. So Utah is the fastest growing state in the U.S. with one of the youngest populations and continues to have the highest birth rate in the United States. And unique to Utah, about 86% of the state lawmakers are members of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, so the LDS Church, which is a significant overrepresentation compared to the overall state, which is just over half, but often determines the state culture and political outcomes. So is likely one of the main reasons that Utah laws are more conservative than positions supported by voters, including areas of liquor licensing, legalization of marijuana, LGBTQIA issues, as well as sexual education, abortion, and contraception. So you're focused, Jessica, on individuals who either aren't eligible for Medicaid or can't afford private insurance, who are uninsured or undocumented or have some sort of hurdle to accessing contraceptives. Yeah, exactly. And so looking at the individual, the clinic and the state level to work toward the goal of all people being able to access all methods of contraception at all times in their lives. You talk sometimes about the difference between theoretical access and actual access. I think I can figure out what theoretical access is on paper. You should have access to a certain suite of contraceptive options, but in practice, it's very different. Talk about what you've encountered in the field. 
one of the things that prompted the statewide contraceptive initiative was the passage of family planning waiver that went up to 100% federal poverty, which many other states have much higher family planning waivers, Medicaid waivers, so allowing for Medicaid coverage for family planning services for folks who wouldn't be eligible for traditional Medicaid. But what we realized was while that would expand coverage, there was nothing in place for making sure that family practice providers or specialty providers had any training on contraceptive care and that clinics understood or had the resources to staff and stock and bill for those services. And so even with that kind of increase in coverage, there was still more work that needed to be done to make sure that people arriving in those clinical spaces had the ability to get the full range of services because we also know that there's a lot of personal preference involved in what makes contraception or a method right for an individual person. And that is influenced by their lived experiences and their priorities. And that it's not just a one method fits all. And it's also not just a one-time thing that people will fluctuate between the desire to prevent a pregnancy and the desire to achieve a pregnancy or not achieve. So that continuity of care becomes a really important part of that actual access. So how are you working with clinics to bridge that gap? Yeah, so Family Planning Elevated has approached this with a really like a multi-level approach. We, you know, look at the individual, the clinic level and health systems level, as well as the policy level and these broader state policies that can influence and impact this care. So one of the ways that we reach clinics and providers specifically is through the Family Planning Elevated Contraceptive Access Program. And it's a two-year membership that engages in with a cash grant for those clinics, as well as any sort of training that they identify as needed by their providers. So that might be technical skills, including IUD and implant insertion, as well as counseling training and to make sure that they check their biases and really understand the best practices of contraceptive counseling to make sure that they are engaging in the highest quality care for their patients. What about on the demand side? How do you reach the people who you are for lack of a better word, targeting the people who you think have challenges in accessing contraception. Yeah, so that's a really great part of this program as well. What we realized was there was a lot more need in some of these other primary care settings that were not primarily doing family planning services, but also were the place where patients felt the most comfortable going. And for many people in Utah, there is a barrier to utilizing services at Planned Parenthood. And so while they're one of the best providers in our state when it comes to family planning services, for some people, it was a non-starter. And so trying to expand the resources in the state that would be culturally acceptable for folks who wanted to seek care closer to home or with their primary care provider. So that was one of the things that on the demand side of being able to reach those patients who kind of identified that area, that that was something that they personally needed, as well as communities that identified that as a need. What are the policies that you're advocating for at the state level? So the Family Planning Medicaid waiver would expand Medicaid coverage to folks that are not eligible for traditional Medicaid. We had some movement in 2018 and they expanded it to 100%. And then 
because of a proposition on the ballot to expand Medicaid broadly, there was actually subsumed into the broader Medicaid expansion, which was really exciting because it moved coverage up to 138% federal poverty. But many states actually have these additional waivers that fill in this gap and often will cover family planning services for folks up to 250% federal poverty or beyond because we see that this is a service that people need and that is often overlooked when people have to decide between gas, groceries, or contraception, that this becomes a lower priority, but really has impacts on every aspect of people's lives if they have an unwanted or or mistimed pregnancy. So, of course, the funding question is very important. Seeking to access a higher level of Medicaid funds is important. There are other state-based initiatives that could really move the needle as well. Can you talk about those? Absolutely. One of the successes that we've seen in Utah is a pharmacy dispensing legislative piece. So pharmacy dispensing allows for pharmacists to dispense hormonal contraception without a previous prescription from a provider. So in theory, this had the potential to or has the potential to really expand access so that folks who know that they want a pill patcher ring can go to their local pharmacist and say, here's what I want, talk me through this, and then I can go home with the method that I want. Especially, and the data shows that the women who get birth control from pharmacists are more likely to be younger, uninsured, and less educated. So it sounds like this channel is reaching the people that traditionally face a lot of barriers to getting healthcare. Exactly. And that's the hope. But the reality of it has been it takes a lot of time to train up pharmacists, that there are more questions that they have that really to provide the best quality care should be answered. And so having a centralized resource becomes really important. The other piece of it is that while the method itself can be covered by insurances, there are still some holes in coverage. So the fee that you would pay directly to the pharmacist for their time and their expertise in that area. And so, you know, that has played out to be a barrier in this pharmacy dispensing legislation and and implementation. But it is really exciting to see, since it was passed, we do have over 150 pharmacies that have enrolled in the program through the standing order at the state level. So there are more and more pharmacies that are interested in doing this And really, the idea of pharmacists prescribing oral contraceptives has taken off in a number of states. 18 states have passed it, including Utah, as you mentioned. 13 states have pending legislation currently. So it is very important to understand what the potential is for that legislation. And as you mentioned, also what we need to focus on in order to make it a reality, a true alternative for people and not just something that theoretically exists. Exactly. And I and I also I love the fact that our group and state initiatives everywhere were able to keep an eye on that because if people weren't paying attention, you would say, oh, this is a win when the reality is there's still a little bit more work to do. Well, we so appreciate your work on the ground, your policy work in Utah, and we certainly hope that Utah can serve as an example of many reforms to come nationwide. So thank you, Jessica, for this engaging conversation. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for being on Deep Dive. That was Jessica Sanders, a researcher and public health advocate in Utah who is successfully expanding access to contraception. A special thanks as well to Fatima Goss-Graves and Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley for their insights into the politics and policies of birth control. 
For more about contraceptive choice and access and the evidence-based solutions worth pursuing, check out www.arnoldventures.org. This has been Deep Dive, a production of Arnold Ventures, where we are dedicated to tackling some of the most pressing problems in the United States. I'm Laura Arnold. Thanks for listening.